Understanding of faith, what he thinks it means, is uh, uh, that it's a belief uh, in spite of, perhaps even because of the lack of evidence, is actually rather popular. Uh, Stephen's away this week uh, in Madagascar, of all places, so he's kindly uh, asked me to speak and um, he's kindly let me speak on something other than Exodus. So we're not doing the Exodus series today. We're going to have a look at Galatians, as you may have picked up. But, um, yeah, thinking about that definition of faith, you see it all over the place. You see it in politicians and journalists who talk about people of faith. And I think it's their way of trying to be inclusive, to sort of say, well, let's not focus on what divides Christians and Muslims, Buddhists and Hindus... Um, let's just let's focus on what unites us. They all have faith. And if that's what Dawkins is thinking of when he thinks of faith, then I reckon he's right to bag it out because that faith is a cop-out. It is an excuse to avoid the need to think. It means you don't have to evaluate what any of the religions are claiming. You just say, oh, well, they're all just people of faith. Why can't we all just get along? That sort of faith is belief in spite of or even perhaps because of the lack of evidence. But it's worth knowing that that is not what the Bible means by faith. Faith, as the Bible uses it, just means trust. Not trust for no reason, not blind trust, but trust that's based on evidence. The Bible actually encourages us to do the very thing that Richard Dawkins advocates. It encourages us to think hard and evaluate the evidence. Now, I think that can be quite threatening for Christians because if we do go and evaluate the evidence for Jesus, there's always the risk that it might not stack up. What if I go and investigate and I find that there's some kind of fatal flaw with these claims? Because then my whole sense of identity, my sense of self just kind of crumbles and my security and my safety and it all just kind of fades away. So I think it can be tempting for Christians to sort of hide behind the, oh, I just have faith kind of thing. Because if it's just about me having faith and it doesn't depend on any evidence, then it doesn't matter what evidence you throw at me, I'm safe. You can't touch me because my faith in Jesus never depended on evidence in the first place. But then thinking and evaluating the evidence for Jesus can be pretty threatening if you're not a Christian as well. In fact, I think uh, the claim that Dawkins often trots out that faith is belief in spite of the lack of evidence can actually be a bit of a protective mechanism for atheists. Because it doesn't matter what evidence you throw at me about Jesus. It doesn't matter how well it might stack up. I don't even need to investigate it in the first place because I know that Christians just have blind faith. They end up doing the very thing that Richard Dawkins rails against. They evade the need to think and evaluate the evidence. And the first five verses of Galatians, if you look at that uh, with me, 
Paul summarizes the gospel that he's preaching, the gospel that he wants people to have faith in. And it's the good news of Jesus, of God's grace and peace in sending Jesus as the Christ, the king that he promised a thousand years earlier, uh, the king who gave himself for our sins on the cross, who took our punishment in our place to rescue us from the present evil age, and who God raised from the dead to rule forever. And the consequences of that are massive. It means sins are paid for, death is defeated, eternal life is on offer for all who trust in Jesus. That is the gospel that Paul preached. And it really, really, really matters. If it's true. And if it's not true, it doesn't matter at all. But how do you know that the gospel that we've received is true? That's what the Galatians are starting to wonder. See, when Paul came and preached his gospel to them in Galatia, up in Turkey... They heard the news about Jesus and they believed. But now they're starting to doubt that it's true. So if you have a look at chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes to them and he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And you think, well, what's happened here? Oh, I mean, we're sort of astonished as well, aren't we? Because the Galatians had believed in Jesus. They'd put their trust in the gospel only a few years earlier, and now they're starting to fall off the bandwagon. What's happened? Why are they suddenly starting to abandon it? What is this different gospel, this distortion that they're turning to? And if you read through the rest of Paul's letter to the Galatians, you discover what's going on. But after Paul had brought the gospel to the people of Galatia, other preachers had come in afterwards. And they said something like this, Oh, you've put your faith in Jesus. That is so wonderful. Terrific. Praise God. We trust Jesus too. But you know what? We notice that you're not keeping the law. And, you know, if you really want to be a proper Christian, if you really want to be confident about your salvation, well, you've got to keep the law. You've got, to, you've got to keep all the, the rules about keeping the Sabbath and what the right food is to eat and, of course, getting circumcised. I mean, you've, essentially, you've got to become Jewish. Think about it. Jesus was a Jew. The law that God gave, well, that wasn't made up by man, was it? It was given by God. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. You trust in Jesus? Terrific, wonderful, so do we. But if you want to be saved, you really need to become a Jew. And that kind of creates confusion, doesn't it? You still find Christians confused about this. How do you actually get saved as a Christian? Like We all agree that you've got to trust in Jesus, but... Surely you've got to do good works as well. Surely you've got to keep God's commands in order to be saved. So who is preaching the true gospel? Is it Paul or is it these other guys? How do we know that Paul didn't just make it up? 
Or maybe he just got it confused, like he'd sort of heard it Chinese whispers style and it got distorted down the track. Or maybe he just wanted to believe it so much that he kind of talked himself into it. Those are serious questions. They're things that deserve serious thought. And so I want us to do what Richard Dawkins asks us to do, and to think and evaluate the evidence. Because I think that's what Paul is asking us to do. It's what he's inviting us to do in this passage of Galatians. Because he doesn't say, look, just look inside your heart and you'll know that what I say is true. He doesn't say, just have faith. No, he lays out clear historical evidence for why the Galatians should believe the gospel. Evidence that we can think about and evaluate. So, let's do it. So the charge against Paul is that he's distorted the gospel. And you can kind of imagine how it might have gone uh, with these other preachers. Oh, look, ah, yes, you've heard the gospel from Paul. Ha, yes, of course. Paul, what can you say about Paul? So a lovely guy, Paul, lovely guy. Um, the only problem is he just really wants people to like him. He's just desperate for people to like him. Yeah, he, you know, we can sympathise with that, but... The problem is that when he preaches the gospel, he just leaves out all the hard bits. He's all good on grace and God's generosity and that kind of thing. Wonderful, so are we. But he leaves out the difficult stuff about how you've got to keep the Sabbath and you've got to keep the food laws and, yeah, you've got to get circumcised as well. And Paul, he just, he's not a bad guy. He just craves approval. And so he distorts the gospel. He tells people what they want to hear, that all they need to do is trust in Jesus to be saved. He just kind of, he's a nice guy, but he wimps out of it because he's a people pleaser. Well, what do you make of that charge? Uh, is it true? I mean, it's certainly psychologically true that people will often, you know, massage the truth a bit to make people feel comfortable around them, to make people like them. Is Paul a gospel-distorting people-pleaser? Well, let's think and evaluate the evidence. Uh, and there are three pieces of evidence that Paul puts forward. Uh, Paul's conviction, Paul's conversion, and Paul's corroboration. Uh, so let's have a look at the first, uh, first one here. Exhibit one is Paul's conviction, chapter one, verse six. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who distort you and want to distort some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In other words, if you preach a different gospel from the one I preach to you, you can go to hell. That is literally what Paul is saying. And the question for us is, do they sound like the words of someone who is happy to change the gospel to make sure everyone gets along? Do they sound like the words of someone who wants everyone to be happy with him, everyone to be pleased with him? Someone who's trying to make everybody like them. Verse 10. 
Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If Paul is the gospel-distorting people-pleaser that his opponents claim, then how come he is so determined not to change the gospel? If he's such a chronic conflict avoider, how come he is so confrontational? When you think and evaluate the evidence, the claim that Paul just made up the gospel so people would like him, it doesn't stack up. It would have made his life infinitely easier if he could have just been a bit more flexible on the whole law and circumcision thing. If he could have just said, yeah, look, you know, keeping the law, getting circumcised, probably not a bad idea, you know, yeah, we can roll with that. But he absolutely refuses to do it. He's got good theological reasons for not doing it. Because if you say, well, yes, Jesus gets us most of the way there, but then we've got to keep the law for the last little bit, well, then actually you're sort of saying that the last little bit you need to keep the law and you'd better keep it perfectly. And if you can keep that last little bit perfectly, well, then you actually don't need Jesus at all. He's got good theological reasons, but it's also clear that he's not the kind of person who distorts the gospel. He's determined to stick to it. He behaves like someone who is utterly convinced that the gospel he's preaching is true and that it could not be more important. Uh, So exhibit one, Paul's conviction. But exhibit two is Paul's conversion, and that comes out in verses 11 to 14 where he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. So we know that Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, He was the top of his class. He was uh, the greatest student of the greatest student of the greatest rabbi who's ever lived, uh, Rabbi Hillel. And Paul was on track to, you know, maybe even surpass Hillel himself, to be one of the greatest rabbis who has ever lived. And he was determined to destroy the church, this breakaway cult who were worshipping Jesus of Nazareth, just a carpenter, as the Messiah. Acts chapter 7 tells us that as a Jewish mob stoned Stephen, a young Christian, to death, Paul was there giving approval. But then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, Paul does a complete 180-degree turn in his opinion about Jesus. From being violently opposed to Jesus, he suddenly becomes Jesus' greatest advocate. From being someone who was utterly opposed to the idea of Jesus as the resurrected Messiah, he suddenly became someone who preached that very message. From someone who was willing to put to death people who proclaimed that, he becomes someone who's willing to proclaim it risking death himself. So how do you explain such a sudden dramatic change? 
Because it's not like he's got family or friends or society who are exerting sort of pressure on him to convert. He wasn't having late night deep and meaningful chats with his Christian mates. He didn't have any. So how do you explain it? Well, says Paul, it's quite simple. I met him. I met the resurrected Jesus. I was on my way from Jerusalem where I just scattered the church up to Damascus. I was going to do the same there. And then on the way, suddenly this bright light came from heaven and I saw Jesus and he spoke to me and he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I suddenly realised that everything I thought about Jesus was completely wrong. God had raised him from the dead. So his claim that he was the Messiah must be true. And he is in charge of everything and his death really was significant for our sins. Everything suddenly turns around. You can read the whole thing in Acts chapter 8. And it sounds incredible. But you've got to think and evaluate the evidence. What makes sense of Paul's sudden, dramatic conversion? His total reversal of all his beliefs about Jesus? Well, meeting the resurrected Jesus would do it, wouldn't it? And that brings us to the third piece of evidence that Paul puts forward. Uh, I've called it Paul's corroboration, uh, because who doesn't like three-point sermons where all the points alliterate? But uh, actually, it's based on what historians call the criterion of of independent attestation, uh, which sounds terribly fancy, but it's uh, actually something that you do all the time. Um, It's just saying that if two independent people tell you about something, it's highly likely that that thing is true. If you've got two independent eyewitnesses, that's much more compelling than just having one. So, you know, if one of your friends comes up to you this afternoon and they say, hey, you wouldn't believe it, but I was just down at Cottesloe and there's this huge whale that's beached itself down there. You might think, okay, I I believe that. Or you might think, go on, you're pulling my leg. But if someone else completely independent, who doesn't know your friend, comes along, you know, a few minutes later and says, hey, you wouldn't believe it, but I've just been down at Cottesloe and there's this huge whale that's beached itself. Well, at that point, you start to think, yeah, this is probably true, isn't it? And that's exactly what Paul is saying about the gospel. Because there are two groups of people who are preaching the gospel completely independently of each other. There's Paul and there's the Jerusalem Apostles the original disciples of Jesus uh, and his younger brother James. And here's the interesting thing. Paul did not receive the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 15 there. He says, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles... My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Paul's received the gospel completely independently of the Jerusalem apostles. He's got it straight from Jesus on the road to Damascus. And after that experience, he doesn't go down to Jerusalem. He goes off into Arabia and then Damascus, presumably preaching the gospel. 
And for three years, he's out there doing that before he ever claps eyes on a Jerusalem apostle. At that point, he does uh, meet Peter and he stays with him for 15 days and he meets one of the other apostles, James, the younger brother of Jesus. And what's the result of that meeting? Does the word go out from Peter and James? Look, just watch out for this guy. He is shonky. He is not preaching the true gospel. He's, he's bad news. No. Just the opposite. When Paul goes to preach in Syria and Cilicia, the Christians in the region of Judea, in the churches there, who have never actually met him, they get the message, the man who previously persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. The message has come out from Jerusalem. He who persecuted us, that is the church in Jerusalem, that's the church he was persecuting, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul, although he never heard the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles, when he finally meets them, he gets a big thumbs up from them, a big tick of approval. And then 11 years later, uh, or 14 years later, it's hard to work out if the 14 includes the previous three or not, doesn't really matter, Uh, In chapter 2, verse 1, he goes up to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas and Titus, to tell the Jerusalem apostles what he's been preaching uh, and to hear what they're preaching as well. And when they hear it, James, Peter and John, they don't say, yeah, look, that's um, that's mostly right, mostly right. Uh, Yeah, that's right, Jesus is Lord. Uh, Yes, uh, he died for our sins. Um, but, yeah, you've kind of got it a little bit wrong on this whole law-keeping thing and circumcision. Um, we really do need to do that. No, they don't say that at all. Instead, they say, snap. What you're preaching is exactly what we're preaching. Titus, although he's a Greek, is not compelled to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law. They recognise that Paul has been entrusted with the gospel to proclaim it to the Gentiles just as Peter has been entrusted to proclaim it to the Jews. They're preaching exactly the same thing. Completely independently of each other, there's no drift in the message, there's no Chinese whispers, there's no distortion or change over time. They're preaching independently exactly the same gospel. You know what? We're actually in a better position to see that than the Galatians ever were. Because if you're a Galatian Christian, you're up there in Turkey, how do you find out what the Jerusalem apostles are preaching? Either they've got to come and visit you, or you've got to trek down to Jerusalem to hear from them. And then you can compare notes. Well, this is what Paul preached, and this is what they preached. Now we can check it. But we don't have to trek anywhere. We've just got to flick over a few pages in the Bible. Because we've got stacks of writings from the Jerusalem apostles. We've got the Gospel of Matthew, we've got the Gospel of John, we've got the Gospel of Mark, which seems to be based on what Peter uh, was talking to Mark about, uh, his accounts. We've got uh, three letters of John, we've got Revelation, we've got two letters of Peter, we've got James, uh, we've got Jude as well. And when you read them, do you think, oh man, this is, this is quite different from what Paul's preaching. This is, this is a different Gospel. No, you read them and you go, snap. They're preaching exactly the same thing. 
Jesus Christ is Lord and you can be saved from sin and death simply by trusting in him, not by keeping the Old Testament law. Jesus is enough. Paul and the Jerusalem apostles independently attest to exactly the same gospel. They corroborate each other. So I want to say that Richard Dawkins is right, uh, or at least half right. Because we can't just turn our brains off and say, I just have faith. We do need to think and evaluate the evidence. But so does everyone else, whether they're Muslim or Buddhist, atheist or agnostic. But what happens when you do think and evaluate the evidence? Where does the evidence lead? Does it lead towards the gospel being made up? towards it being distorted. No, exactly the opposite. Firstly, there's Paul's conviction. He does not behave like someone who makes up stories to make people happy with him. Secondly, Paul's conversion, his total reversal of all his prior beliefs about Jesus. It's a reversal that is so stunning that only meeting the resurrected Jesus really makes sense. And thirdly, Paul's independent attestation of the gospel, how he corroborates the Jerusalem apostles and they corroborate him. When you think and evaluate the evidence, the evidence doesn't point towards the gospel being made up. It doesn't point towards it being something that you've just got to close your eyes and have faith about. It points to it being true and historically verifiable. You can test it out with normal historical methods. And this is radically different from something like Islam or Mormonism, where you've just got to take someone's word for it. How do we know that Muhammad actually talked to the angel Gabriel? Well, actually, there's no way of checking. You've just got to take his word for it. How do you know that Joseph Smith really met the angel Moroni and was given gold tablets with writings from God on it. Well, actually, there's no way of checking. You've just got to take his word for it. But that's not true with the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is open to historical testing and historical verification. You can check it using normal historical methods. And when you do, it checks out. And that is really big news because it means that our sins really can be forgiven. We really can be delivered from this evil age. We really can be adopted by God as his sons and daughters. And we really can look forward to sharing in his glory forever and ever. So Dawkins is right. Faith in the absence of evidence is a cop-out. It is an excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate the evidence. But faith in the gospel is not that. Faith in the gospel is simply the logical response to thinking and evaluating the evidence. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark about your son Jesus, but that you have revealed the truth about him, that you have recorded uh, his life and what he said and what he did and the significance of it all. And thank you that we can have real confidence about that because you have recorded it in the Bible um, 
and that you uh, have given us real historical evidence, serious evidence, that it's true, Father. And Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence in the gospel, that we might uh, hold on to it and that we might proclaim it confidently to others, that others might come to know and trust in Jesus as well. We ask it for his sake. Amen.